I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is The Asian Adian. A magazine first published in 1978, The Asian Adian is one of Canada's first anti-racist, anti-sexist, and anti-homophobic magazines. Run by a group of volunteers building a network across the country, The Asian Adian established a national platform for Asian Canadian writers, artists, musicians, and activists. The magazine featured articles and columns discussing Asian Canadian identity, anti-racist commentary, building cultural communities, and pushing back against stereotypes. And while the magazine published its final issue in 1985, its seven-year run demonstrated how communities can be built through culture and overcome geographic distance through powerful cultural connections. And it is the subject of a new book by Angie Wong entitled Laughing Back at Empire, the grassroots activism of the Asian Indian magazine, 1978 to 1985. And in the book, Angie goes through the entire catalog of the Asian Indian, as well as conduct interviews with the members, editors, volunteers, and readers who were there at the time to get a sense of the collective spirit that was behind the magazine, the activist sentiment that went into the articles and the publishing process, and the significance of the community both at the time and following the magazine's run. And it really is a wonderful look at a very powerful cultural outlet, uh, despite its relatively short run. It certainly has a much greater impact than you might expect So I had the opportunity to speak with Angie Wong about the book. Really enjoyed this discussion. Hope you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Angie Wong. All right. And Angie Wong joins me now. Angie, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you here to talk about Laughing Back at Empire. As I mentioned in the intro, it is a profile of the Asian-Adian magazine and First off, is that I've never heard anybody, I've come across that, uh, or I read it, of course, in the book, but I've never heard anybody say the word out loud. Is that how you would pronounce it too? Yeah, Asianadian. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is, was that something that at the time, as the they were writing it, that they talked about internally and in any of the stuff you found? Like, how yeah. are people saying this word? Well, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because it was actually a placeholder for, so before the Asian Adian, there was a, like a proto version, like a pre kind of Asian Adian version. And a couple of the co-founders, they had been working um, on a Chinese language uh, magazine, like a small zine at that time. Um, but they had some artistic differences. So the co-founders of the Asian Adian uh, ended up taking their uh, storyboards and going in a different direction. But they still needed a 10-letter word to replace the 10-letter word of the previous title. And the previous title of the magazine was called uh, Crossroads. Uh, one, of the, the co-founder, one of the co-founders of the Asian Adian, uh, Chuck Kwan, shared this, this story with me. Uh, And so they needed a 10-letter word to replace crossroads. And by strange coincidence, Asianadian fit in that (laughs) 10-letter word. So yeah, whether it was meant to be or or it was by coincidence, uh, it fit. Uh, And and of course, you know, Asianadian means Asian-Canadian blended together. Um, It takes out that hyphen that Asian hyphen Canadian, which some scholars and, and some cultural theorists are, um, don't really like, right? Are a little bit uh, picky about the hyphen, which is, again, understandable when it comes down to like identity, putting a hyphen in between Asian and Canadian kind of reproduces at least like visually and textually that divide between Asian and Canadian. So asian Canadian was a really unique uh, hybrid of Asian and Canadian. And that's exactly what the magazine was too. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the, a bit of the origin story there that this is how it comes about. So what was that initial vision for the magazine and how did the 
the founders, this group who started, how did they come together? What, what was that backstory? Yeah, so there is a bit of a famous story about the Asian-Canadian, at least some of the Asian-Canadian literati are familiar with the story. The origins of the Asian-Canadian come out of the Mars Cafe on College Street in Toronto, way back in 1977, 1978. Um, and like I just said, uh, the proto-version to asian was a Chinese language uh, magazine. And one of the co-founders is a Chinese uh, person uh, from, from Hong Kong and from East Asia. And he um, thought that, you know, just like I said before, there was a bit of a artistic difference with the Crossroad publishers. And they believe that if they could do a bilingual magazine that maybe featured like Chinese English, it would speak to a larger audience rather than folks who only, you know, could read one uh, or the other. So uh, that's where it started. After the first two co-founders took their storyboards from Crossroads, uh, they, they thought of another friend named Paul Levine, who was actually listed as uh, Lao Bo in the masthead. And he was the, I think, if not one of the only, then one of the very few non-Asian uh, members of the Asian Indian. Um, Paul came from a, a Jewish background um, and he uh, found, you know, he studied actually Chinese etymology and Chinese language in his own uh, master's and graduate uh, thesis. So he already already had a bit in a, of an affinity uh, towards um, especially Asians in Canada and the plight uh, through the immigration experiences that they had uh, gone through. So uh, they were kindred hearts and spirits in, in creating this really like grassroots uh, magazine. And it came about, yeah, from those initial conversations that started out in the Mars Cafe uh, on College Street uh, in Toronto. And the three of them, the three co-founders are Chuck Kwan, uh, Tony uh, Chan, and Paul Levine. Uh, they decided to bring this to who they thought were other Asian Canadian uh, readers, you know, in, 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 in Toronto and, and probably out in Vancouver. Um, but I don't think they were, could foresee that it would have such a big uh, national uh, impact at that time. Yeah. Cause the, the thing about, I mean, I've spent some time living in Saskatchewan and I, I know you've spent a lot of time out in Calgary uh, as well. So People always get mad when we say national, but it's something based in Toronto. People tend to, and perhaps rightly, get mad at that, that national Toronto don't necessarily go together. And certainly when you look <laughs> right. at the, the, the Chinese-Canadian community, large pockets across the prairies, certainly in Vancouver, and definitely th there's communities in the East Coast as well. So how do these guys, starting in Toronto, on college, at the Mars Cafe, how do they find that national audience and build the national community? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question because I think they all, always knew in their hearts that they wanted it to be, if not specifically national, then it, they wanted it to be something bigger. Um, I think they had imagined that for sure it would um, attract audiences in Toronto because there was a lot of uh, racialized um, and immigrant activist movement and grassroots movements that were, and of course the civil rights era was was very uh, close to that time as well. So they were influenced by a lot of the um, grassroots movements and the cultural production that was already taking place uh, in Toronto. Uh, luckily, they also knew people out in Vancouver. Vancouver has and had at that time a fairly large um, Asian and Asian Canadian uh, literary and kind of artistic scene. Uh, so even beyond the Asian Canadian, uh, these folks were the editorial collective knew of one another. Uh, they were friends. They had grown up with one another, and of course, they found each other through these kind of small grassroots cultural production uh, networks. Um, so I guess inherently it already was kind of a national collaboration. But what's really interesting is um, they have one issue, the uh, Quebec issue that came out. And that was really like a multi-layered national provincial effort where they had 
So it was printed always out of Toronto. They had Romanian printers that they uh, brought it to in the 70s. The guys that gave them a really good price at that time. So it was always printed in Toronto. But for this Quebec issue, they, of course, had writers out of Quebec with a focus on Asians um, as well as Muslims um, and their experiences in Quebec at that time. But then they also had a production team out of Halifax and writers out of Vancouver who were contributing articles to that Quebec issue. So it really was a broader, you know, national collective. But I mean, we can even think of this beyond just the Canadian kind of national category. Um, Asian Canadians are both really national people, but also really international people. Like Asians come from all over the world, right? Yes, they all they come from Asia for sure, but they also found their way right to different parts of the world too. So I think in their heart of hearts, because the co-founders themselves were really um, quite open to like uh, international discourse, third world decolonization, post-colonial movements that were happening really heightened in, in the uh, 60s and 70s. They were really yeah, motivated by that broader uh, audience as well and that's how they made those broader they even had a section called international forum that they ran for a short period um, um during um when the magazine when the magazine was running um so they knew that um any kind of anti-asian racism or any kind of asian canadian grassroots movements had deeper broader ties to the decolonial um, movements that were happening around the uh, world as well and so and so yeah that international forum uh, they would report a lot on events things that were happening in bangladesh and vietnam But that leads to a certain question of the diversity within the Asian Canadian community. And and let's even take out Asia just for a second. The fact that across the country, culturally, East Coast is different from the West Coast, is different from Central Canada. And then if you're taking people from across Asia, all the various cultural backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, how does all that kind of blend together in this magazine that is reaching out and has an audience that is very diverse and is trying to reach this broader readership. Yeah. Well, that comes from, I think the subscribers and the people who were contributing, uh, the people who were not directly a part of the editorial collective, but they were writing their short stories, their poetry, and they were sending them to the Asian Asian to be featured. I've been very lucky enough to be able to interview a lot of people who we're a part of, are a part of the Asian Asian resource workshop, that editorial collective. A lot of these folks are still around here. So I feel really kind of like lucky and really honored to still be able to call them up and ask them questions, you know, if I, if I have any. So, um, but what made it such a broad and like you said, diverse collective was because it was really in the hands of the people. Yes, there were co-founders. Yes, there was like a main editorial collective but it was a non-hierarchical rotating a collective so people changed their positions and changed their roles uh, all the time Um, and that didn't mean it was disorganized or messy in any way it actually meant that all these people coming together and being so willing to take on these rotating roles meant that they were really committed to sharing stories about Asians in Canada and Asian Canada, because like you said, it's such a diverse group within Canada, uh, in Asia and beyond, um, that this kind of open forum that um, welcomed um, writing, music, poetry, photography, all kinds of cultural production, it was really, yeah, very welcoming and open to all who identified with an Asian heritage, um, and mostly for people who were at that time, working through understanding what multicultural Canada even meant at that time, what it meant to be Asian uh, in in Canada. And just going back to this idea of Asianadian, before the Asianadian magazine, I was told by many interviewees, Asian people in Canada were not called Asian Canadians. They were called other things. They were called more derogatory terms, right? They were relegated under that giant scary umbrella of the yellow peril, this idea that 
this horde or mass of Asian people and Asian laborers are, are coming over to North America to take over our jobs and take over um, our economy. So they're working against, they were working against some pretty long held and strong standing uh, stereotypes. So to take back, or even not to take back, but to take up this identity of being Asian Canadian or even Asian Canadian at that time was really very radical. Um, it meant for people at that time that they were saying that, you know, they were hybridizing their identities in a positive way to say that I am both, I can be both, and there is room in this country for both and more. Yeah. And, and is there something about, say, Asian Canadian versus Chinese Canadian, Japanese Canadian, Vietnamese Canadian, that brings a, a certain different sense of community uh, across those various cultural backgrounds? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I think it, um, well, Chinese Canadian and like Vietnamese Canadian, of course, they're very specific to, they're, they're eth more ethnocentric, right? They're particular, they're um, identifying a specific type of Asian ethnicity. And sometimes, yeah, I do navigate and I go back and forth between being Chinese Canadian, being a Chinese person born in Canada and being an Asian Canadian. It does depend on the context of what we're speaking about um, and the context of the history that we're learning. Right. So we could say like very broadly, Asian Canadians, yes, experienced discrimination uh, quite widely throughout the 20th century. Right? Right. But then if we get into the specifics of, well, what did they experience? Right. Then I need to ask, well, who <laughs> who are you asking about? Right? Chinese right. Canadians, they have a pretty um, substantial um, and I guess recognize, more or less like recognized history of the head tax, uh, the Chinese exclusion. Um, like, you know, this year, uh, this month is the 100 year anniversary of the 1923 Chinese uh, Immigration Act being passed, which is that was the act that uh, banned all Chinese people from entering Canada, uh, except, you know, limiting to like four categories of people who could actually enter. So, right. Yeah. And then, yeah, you could, the uh, Japanese Canadian uh, detention during yes. the second world war is another That's example. Right. And yeah, so th there, there are a lot of examples of, of specifically targeted discriminatory policies, yeah. but Broadly speaking, yeah, you could speak to a, an Asian discriminatory history yeah. uh, in this country from from that level, right? So it, it is kind of an interesting dynamic to monitor in, in that sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is it to then about the time? So the magazine runs 78 through 1985, and this is, I'd say, the tail end of the era associated with broadly civil rights movement, that activism of the 60s and 70s. And then when we get into the 1980s, largely we associate that, or at least I do, with kind of this conservative backlash. Uh, you see the rise of, in Canada, Mulroney, Reagan in the United States, Thatcher in Great Britain. So you have that conservatism that rises up, that some view as a backlash to the activism of the 60s and 70s. And here this magazine is operating within that environment. So how do they navigate really what at least seems to me a real cultural shift from that late right. 70s into the 1980s? How are they navigating that space? It's it's tough to navigate. Um, in, in all honesty, I think it was really difficult for them to navigate because they had put so many hours and in some case for some of them, like they had put years of their lives uh, committed to to producing good content and producing uh, to producing this uh, magazine, and you know, yeah. To be quite frank, politics aside, life catches up to you. You know, people <laughs> right is kind of like the stage I'm at in my life right now. Um, you start having families, or you start thinking about your family. If you start having children, your priorities and things like that start changing quite, uh, quite a bit. And so, beyond even the influence of the political landscape that was going on, you know, in Ontario, but also in Canada more broadly, a lot of them unfortunately had to give up the magazine because they had their own lives and, and families and family matters that they had to uh, take care of. 
Um, which I guess is why it's also a bit heartbreaking that it that the magazine ends when it ends, right? Mm-hmm. It ends in 1985, and at this point in 1985, they have you know perfect six volumes, 24 issues, really neatly packaged. Um, and it wasn't as if you know, I mean, in 1985, no one knew that that would be like the last year of the Asian Indian, and if you are. Um, if you get a chance to like read any of the editorials um, from like 1981 onwards, uh, you see the editors struggle uh, with their ability to f- find time to fully uh, commit. Um, not only that, they were having a hard time finding writers. It was really, really hard to, there were people writing, right? Of course there were people writing and, and submitting things to the magazine, but they didn't have, you know, just enough capacity amongst the editorial collective, but then also amongst other people who were submitting uh, to the magazine. It was hard to keep the flame uh, going, especially when you needed so much radical fervor, Mm -hmm. so much time uh, and commitment. And and you'll see uh, like throughout the book in chapter two, where I really get into like the nitty grits of like each volume, all six volumes of the magazine. Um, I talk about how uh, I actually mentioned there's one uh, interview quote from Olivia Chow, who is wonderfully now the new uh, mayor of uh, Toronto. Um, she she talked about how what a wonderful time it was and how nobody was tired at that time because everybody was young. They were energized. They knew that what they were doing was for a good cause. Right. But as the years went on, you know, other commitments had to uh, take over. And this was really a grassroots effort. They had very fine, very little financial support. I mean, literally, it was whatever, sometimes it was whatever cash they could pull out of their pockets at that time. Yeah, so they were really, it was really um, a labor of love. Right. This was not funded by not until like the last two years. It wasn't funded by any kind of you know, Canada Arts Council at that time anyways. Yeah. Right. So they were really just doing this from their hearts. And that I think that takes a special kind of person. It takes a special group of people, mm-hmm. um, which is yeah, who these people were and, and who they are. Um, even, you know, decades after the Asian Indian had ended and when it came to my time finding and coming across the magazine, um, I was so welcomed um, by the Asian Indian Editorial Collective, by the Asian Indian Resource Workshop. Uh, nobody was hostile towards me. Nobody was like hesitant and kind of like asking, what was I doing there? Every, every single person that I encountered in that Editorial Collective were so welcoming, so excited to see that someone from another generation, from like a younger generation was picking up their work. Um, and that was just, I mean, what they wrote was really so um, inspiring. And for the the few people who I've gotten to work on other projects related to uh, the Asian Indian um, magazine, we're, we're creating like a digital archive too, not just this book, but we're also trying to create a digital archive so that people in the future and now can have access to the all 24 issues of the magazine it's in its entirety. Um, people, when they read this, um, and I'm biased, of course, uh, Asian Canadians whom I've talked to who have read this, are inspired. Um, they're motivated, um, they're inspired to find pride in their culture and heritage. It helps addressing things like internalized racism, which maybe a lot of Asians who grow up in North American uh, experience. I know I certainly experienced a lot of that stuff. Um, but it was just really powerful to see, to know that people were doing this in a decade when it wasn't really um, it didn't really seem possible uh, at that time. But I th- yeah, it was the energy uh, of the time. And that energy has certainly carried on. I mean, it's the 45th anniversary of the Asian Indian this year, too. So that energy yeah, has really, really uh, carried on. And, and so I hope, yeah, with my book, too, that it gives some people that the same kind of motivation that I had. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned the challenges financially of it, but at the same time, the very passionate group of people who are running it 
and that it was finding an audience. Was there ever any sense amongst the people who were running it that this could be a business, that it could be something that could sustain them career-wise? Or, you know, a lot of these things when you're young people talk about selling out right like if if you do that and you don't want that and then you lose the soul of it but mm-hmm. as you say people do shift priorities as they get older families that but if you can make it financially sustainable create a business potentially was that ever discussed or based on circulation and, and the research you've done was that even potentially a feasible option that's a great question and that's something I, I should have asked the the uh, Asian Aiden collective too, because I don't think that was ever a viable option. Right. Asian Aiden should have been, and I'm borrowing from one of the uh, editorial uh, members. It should have been a household name, yeah. right? And that's what a lot of people. Uh, that's what a lot of the editorial collective had aspirations for too, because they saw the impact of their small and mighty of the small and mighty uh, uh magazine they had about 300 subscribers like all around the world internationally i know most of them in canada and the usa they had a few subscribers out in in europe i don't know which european countries um but they had a good following but i don't think there was ever any worry or fear of selling out um like i said if anything they they wanted greater financial support and creative support um, as well. But that option for funding in the 70s and 80s not, was not nearly as available as it is like uh, today, right? right? Like we have Canada Arts Council, we have lots of different kind of um, uh, arts grants that you can apply for to support initiatives like this, right? To create uh, zines and zines and stuff like right. that, right? But at that time, it really was, yeah, just a labor of love. And, and you'll see like several, several in several uh, interviews throughout the book, lots of people talk about literally copying and pasting, cutting, because there were no, there was no such thing as printers in the home at that time either in the 70s and 80s, right? Like people didn't just have home computers and home printers. So they really had to be very meticulous. Like if you were committed, you were committed. They were cutting and pasting things like on their kitchen table right they had to put things on these giant storyboards before they brought it to the romanian um uh, printers right they were doing kind of like more uh, manual labor uh to to put together uh this uh, magazine so there was never any fear of that but there was always you know the desire for and the people who were you know when they were working on the asian Asian at that time like you can see the quality of the content is really, really high. Um, just because, you know, um, due to financial issues, like they couldn't print, they had to change to newsprint, which is not the nicer, glossier, high quality print of magazines. And they even wrote that in their editorial. And they were distressed by it, right? They wanted to keep this thing going. They knew that it was important, but it... Unfortunately, right when you have a when you're starting a new family, things are not financially viable. Uh, yeah, I wish I wish they had that option. I wish they had the you know the dilemma of whether they needed to sell out or not. But yeah. right, they almost needed a wealthy business person to. <laughs> I've been a reader and say, hey, I'll fund this. That's right for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of a, a, a one of those. It's called angel investors. Or <laughs> yes. Come, yeah, that would have been great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In, in terms of what is in the magazine, we haven't really gotten into to that yet. We've alluded a little bit to the spirit of what the magazine is trying to accomplish. But in a typical issue, and in one of the 24 issues, what is the type of content that a subscriber who gets the magazine, they open it up, What what's the sort of thing that they would be looking at when they get their right. issue right so they changed their columns and layouts a bit throughout throughout the run of the magazine because they're trying to figure out you know what works for audiences did they have enough people to write for certain columns even so they had to do you know some make some adjustments but in an average asian Asian magazine when you first open it you get your table of contents of course um, within the first page or two you have the editorial 
um, which is written by one of the Asian Asian members. You've got the list of the editors in the masthead. Um, and most prominently within the first few pages of, I think almost every issue, except maybe the first issue. No, yeah, I think in almost every issue of the Asian Asian, they have something called the Asian Asian aims. And so those were like the aims of the, of the group, right? Or the aims of the magazine. Yeah, so and I have it in the book too, right? So they have six aims and that's kind of the agenda, the purpose of the magazine. Uh, the first one is to find new dignity and pride in being Asian in Canada. The second one is to promote an understanding between Asian Canadians and other Canadians. The third is to speak out against those conditions, individuals and institutions perpetuating racism in Canada. Number four is to stand up against distortions of our history in Canada, the stereotypes, economic exploitation, and the general tendency towards injustice and inequality practiced on minority groups. Number five is to provide a forum for Asian Canadian writers, artists, musicians, etc. Number six is to promote unity by bridging the gap between uh, Asians with roots in Canada and recent uh, immigrants. Um, and I, I just stop here really quickly to highlight this because this really was the true aim of the magazine and what they did in all 24 issues. Um, so like I said earlier, they had welcomed um, writing and submissions from everyday artists, writers, musicians, kids interested in poetry or photography. So they would often have written pieces uh, such as essays, right? And sometimes these essays would be political in nature. And if that was the case, it might fall under like um, a column that's called on the firing line, right? Ooh. So you come across, yeah, on the firing line. And that column was specifically to talk about Canadian politics, multiculturalism, or anything, any kind of social and political issue that was important to the writer at that time. Uh, we would see things like, um, you could also see things like uh, drawings, etchings, or sketches from people. You would see tons of poetry, of course. Um, in some of the earlier uh, issues, they would have crosswords puzzles, like just, you know, yeah, kind of crosswords puzzles. Uh, earlier, too, in earlier issues, they had a children's photography section. Um, they had a column called Heritage Reruns, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like going, uh, I, I call it the precursor to the, you know, the CBC Heritage Minutes yeah. that came out in the 1990s. Yeah, the Asian Asian did did heritage stuff before kind of CBC <laughs> made it really popular. Uh, so they did heritage minutes where they, you know, they would um, select a submission from someone who had written about maybe their grandfather, right. Or someone. Yeah. So about nice. more about like Canadian history and heritage. One of my favorite columns uh, is called the dubious achievement awards. <laughs> <laughs> and those were, it was a fun way that the editorial collective of um, it was a fun way to kind of poke fun at the embarrassing stereotypes that Canada and other uh, North Americans had created about Asians, you know, those really nasty stereotypes of like all Asians look the same, the squint eyes, the buck teeth, wearing the pillbox hat, you know, that really kind of hokey yellow peril old school uh, stereotypes. So they would nominate, they would give a dubious award to any business, newspaper outlet, uh, newspaper, yeah, who that uh, used racist stereotyping, either for marketing, for, you know, personal achievements, uh, for business and things like that. And they got quite a few. They, they gave out dubious awards to like, um, like racist Chinese restaurants or not actually Chinese restaurants, but like racist, like appropriative restaurants in Toronto, trying to culturally appropriate like Chinois or Chinese styles. Yeah. So, so that was a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughter right throughout the, uh, the pages uh, of the magazine. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there were things like the international forum, which brought more like international news uh, from Asia and things like that uh, to um, Asian Indian uh, readers. So those are the kinds of things that you could um, encounter within the Asian Indian. And just the amount of, you know, those were just like some of the columns, but the diverse discussions that they had, like, 
I really mean it when I, I think like they are the first group in Canada to be holding these kinds of discussions on anti-racism, anti-homophobia, not just among other Canadians, but among Asian Canadians, right? Because that subject was sexuality um, um, and sexual identity were somewhat taboo in a lot of households and a lot of families. So having a safe space such as the magazine forum to uh, discuss these things um, I think gave a lot of hope to other readers out there and in some instances if you like if anyone ever gets to read the all 24 issues like front to back you can see in the letters to the editor I'm sorry I forgot to mention that too they had letters uh, to the editor you can actually see dialogues form between um, you know, a printed story in one issue and someone responding in their letter to the editor. What actually happened was that's how Richard Fung became a part of the Asian Adian. Um, he read a, um, a short story uh, called Out of the Shadows by Gerald Chan. Uh, by Gerald, uh, Chan. Um, and it was a story about a queer Asian man um, coming into being uh, of himself and coming into uh, himself. And this resonated um, uh, with Richard. And if you know Richard, he's he's Asian, Trinidadian, Canadian. He's queer. He's an activist. He's a filmmaker. So this kind of story at that time really spoke to him. And that's what inspired him to join the Asian Asianadian. Um, and since then, he's done, you know, he founded Gay Asians of Toronto um, at the time when he was with Asianadian. Uh, he went to conferences in Washington on like the first international forum on on Asian queers. Um, so there were a lot of people described the Asianadian as kind of like a jumping off um, platform. It wasn't, you know, at that time, they didn't merely see it as a stepping stone. They actually, lots of folks saw this as like, this is the only place where I could send my poetry and, you know, not feel the really kind of judgmental eyes of the Canadian mainstream literary scene, which at that time was quite white. <laughs> so, so this really was the only space, yeah, for folks to come in and express themselves in a way where they felt comfortable uh, to do so. And it created, yeah, all these wonderful columns and editions and, yeah, conversations. So that leads to the question of the legacy and and what the Asian Adian, uh, what its legacy is, because you've mentioned some of the people who are, as you say, still very active uh, across the country and in respective communities uh, from coast to coast to coast. But you also have the editions themselves, the actual magazines. And as you say, you're trying to put together a, a digital archive that people have access to, and, and certainly in the context of the last three years, the increase in discriminatory uh, crimes and just attitudes towards the Asian Canadian community. So within that context, the fact that these people are, a lot of them are still around, still active, the, the physical copies are, are there, they're available yeah. to be read. Yeah. But then we have this changing climate, like really what is the legacy <laughs> of the Asian Asianadian <laughs> as we sit here in the summer of 2023? Oh, well, they left behind. Oh, it's so weird because, again, yes, they're still with us. <laughs> the Asian Adian is a tremendous uh, legacy because they left behind so much guidance, direction, advice, recommendation, and just ways of thinking for people who encounter racism. And maybe for people who encounter racism for the first time and become really conscious of it. Um, I mean, that's how I kind of came came to find the uh, Asian Adian is, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I had a pretty like bad racist encounter, racist encounters in uh, grad school, <laughs> which is, um, you know, unfortunately not uncommon for a lot of people uh, like me. And I you know, I went to the different levels of administration and professors and things like that, different levels of bureaucracy to seek guidance and seek help, mostly on what to do. And I was kind of left in the lurch uh, with a lot of that stuff. But then when I found the Asian Adian, and I found out that the co-founders and the most of the editorial collective was still around, I thought maybe I should... I should ask them. I had read the first issue. I had read the issue on uh, sexuality 
volume 1.3 on sexuality and it really like blew my mind at that time because it was answering a lot of questions that I had had at that time which included things like why is this happening to me why is this racism happening to me am I doing something wrong uh, why is this so common why does this keep happening so all of these questions yeah brought me to uh, the Asianadian and I found a lot of solutions in just reading those pages because I realized now I realize 45 years ago they were experiencing and encountering the same things um, now unfortunately what they've left behind hasn't wholly and fulsomely addressed anti-Asian racism but that's kind of why I wrote this book too right I'm hoping to bridge I don't know, dialogue or some kind of consciousness between my generation and younger generations and the older generations of like the Asian Indian folks who left this legacy behind. Um, because in, yeah, reading and rereading what the Asian Indian has to offer, it also helped me realize that like I'm not, I'm not totally in the dark. I'm not crazy. For asking these questions or having these uh, queries about uh, racism and about what it means to be uh, Asian in Canada. And I know other people ask these questions too. They must, right? It can't just, I know, right? It can't just be me. And so what they left behind is a legacy of hope. Um, and not only a legacy of hope, right? But a legacy of like radical hope of standing on your own two feet as a proud Asian, Asian Canadian, Canadian, Asian born in Canada, however you identify, uh, the Asian Indian left behind a legacy of hope um, and pride in yourself. And I think that is really beautiful, especially um, in the face of all the violence that people who look like me and older Asians have uh, experienced. Because like you said, over the, yeah, over the past three years, that's come back, right? That anti-Asian violence. And for, you know, for whatever reason, well, you know, yeah, anti-Asian racism always seems to pop its head back out every 10 years or so, although it seems to be less and less now. Uh, but it always seems to come back and it's transformed a little bit. Maybe the face has gotten a little bit uglier. But the tools to deal with that racism have always been there. Right. And I find them in the pages. I find those solutions in the pages of the magazine. Right. And this wasn't just, you know, national conversations about these really ethereal or broad philosophical topics about racism. They also had things like community forums and community directories right in Toronto for you know, Chinese doctor's offices for Chinese acupuncture, uh, for immigration services, which was really important at that time for a lot of newcomers who were coming. And it certainly wasn't just like East Asians or, yeah, like Chinese Canadians who read the magazine. Asian Indian is broadly construed and meant for all Asians. So if you're South Asian from those larger, South, uh, from those, sorry, South Asian countries, right, you're also seen to be a part of that. Asian-Adian uh, community. So that's also a way in which, yeah, it, it helped diversify an understanding of what it meant to be Asian-Canadian. And in that way, too, that helped dismantle all those nasty yellow peril stereotypes because it showed that, like, the Asian that Canadians thought they knew stereotyped through the yellow peril were actually not those Asians at all, right? They're actually Asians who have really strong political alignments. They're Asians who are artists, who write music, uh, who paint and create things, who take photography, right? They're far more dynamic human beings, right? Than just foreign Asian laborers. So they left behind, yeah, that legacy of hope um, and pride and also the really important like directions and guidance of like how to combat racism, how to stand up for yourself. Yeah. Right. And, and those documents, while historical, and you hope that that material wouldn't necessarily be relevant to today, other than understanding what happened then, the <laughs> fact that it is continues to be relevant as, as these things continue to perpetuate and exactly. continue to experience them. It's, it's 
in one hand, I guess, nice that the material's there, but also on the other hand, I don't know, upsetting. I don't know if upsetting is the right yeah. word, but upsetting that it needs to to still be relevant, if, if that's mm-hmm. if I could say it in that way. Yeah, well, it's actually nice that it's there because it helps, you know, it helped like people in my generation be like, oh my God, we don't have to start from scratch. Because right. um, I think a lot of folks when they first, when, they, when they're really conscious of the fact that they are experiencing racism or when they first become conscious of the fact that they've experienced a racist encounter, it's super personal. You feel super lonely. You feel like no one else gets it in right in the world. You feel like if I told this to someone else, they would think I'm crazy. They'd fluff it off as like not racist, which is, you know, really common. It still happens. And it's nice to know that, you know, there have been people around who have left behind, yeah, this rallying call uh, to not give up. If you read in the first few pages, I start off the book with a poem by musician and novelist uh, Terry Watata. It's called Found Poem. And that poem, I think, really captures the entirety of the book, which is that we've experienced racism before, we're experiencing it now, and we're probably going to experience it again, right? And it's going to be surprising and upsetting and shocking Each time it happens, because each time it happens, a new generation has encountered it or a different generation uh, has encountered it. So we need to equip folks with those tools to be prepared to, uh, you know, not necessarily like stand up towards racist aggression or put yourself in, in, in danger in, yeah, or in any kind of harm's way, right? But it's really more of like a psychological and a kind of personal working through of that racist encounter and part of that working through that racist encounter is reading that other people have been through this other people have gotten out of it other people have become stronger because of it certainly very powerful and frankly a good reason to go pick up the book which is laughing back at empire the grassroots activism of the asian Adian magazine 1978 to 1985 angie how can people pick up the book where can they find it and where can they keep up with uh, everything else you got going on oh my goodness well um it's not in print just yet but you can get a pre-ordered copy from university of manitoba press and yeah i just have to shout out ump because they they're awesome everybody on their team is been nothing but so supportive so generous with their time Uh, so you can pre-order a copy but it's supposed to be on shelves Uh, it'll be in print and on shelves in september very exciting and i'll say uh, from the university of manitoba press website starting with the paperback which i love i you know i I know people will totally stand the hardcover books yeah, like they look great. Okay, fine, whatever. I hate reading hardcover books. I don't oh, like really? hold, I don't like holding them. So I get they're really bulky. Yeah, they just and they're heavy and they get in the way. I love a paperback. So I'm always excited when they start with the paperback. Because uh, it gives me a physical thing I can read right away. I don't have to wait for the paperback. So yes, thank you to the I University agree. of Manitoba Press. So I'm <laughs> very excited. And I will say too, from a university press, the pre-order price is like reasonable like it's not right it's under 30 bucks it's you know usually university presses are like here's a new book how about four hundred dollars yeah it's very reasonable the book is very accessible it's not a huge academic tome i promise (laughs) you it is is, i made it very i tried to make it very accessible um because those are kind of like the lessons that i learned from the asian adian and the Asian Indian resource uh, workshop, right? These these things should be accessible to all people because, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, these experiences are quite uh, ubiquitous yes. um, as well, right? So the toolkit has to be pretty open to adaptation, if I could say it that way. Yeah. And uh, and we will link in the show notes to the University of Manitoba page if you want to pre-order it uh, and and check it out, a, a description of what's in there. So I encourage you to check it out. Uh, Angie Wong, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. So there you have it, my chat with Angie Wong. I thank her for her time. And again, laughing back at Empire, the grassroots activism of the Asian Indian magazine, 1978 to 1985. And with that, let's get into today's historical headline of the week, which comes from the CBC. 
Winston Ma, who's part of the PR team there, one of the point of view essays entitled, I was ashamed of being Chinese until I learned about my ancestors' first years in Canada. And this was published in May around the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Immigration Act. And Winston talks about his personal journey with his family's history that he assumed that his family came to Canada in the 1970s, but discovered from his mother somewhat unexpectedly that his family actually came a hundred years earlier and that his great-grandfather had paid the head tax when he came to Canada. And this set him on his own personal journey through his family's history, through the broader cultural history of Chinese immigration and Chinese Canadian stories from across the country. It's an article that not only speaks to a family history, but also to how micro histories, individual histories, family histories are influential and shape broader national narratives and communities. It's a wonderful article. It's really well written, and I would highly recommend it for both some context into the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Immigration Act, a really good example of connecting family history into national history, as well as the significance of building community both in the present and with the past, which is something that Angie talked about at great length with her book. And this is a wonderful example, I think, in Winston Ma's article at a individual level of, of what the folks were trying to do at the Asian Canadian. You get a sense of it here with Winston and his own journey through his family's history. So today's historical headline of the week, I was ashamed of being Chinese until I learned about my ancestors' first years in Canada. Winston Ma from the CBC, May 30th, 2023. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. We did take a bit of a hiatus during the summer months, but we are back. I already have some stuff recorded here for the fall. Should be weekly as we head through to the end of the calendar year. So if you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, likes, rates, comments, all that good stuff helps us keep the show going. Other people find us, keeps us growing, all that good stuff that podcasts need to do. And of course, you can always head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there under the podcast tab. Some great written material as well. We have a series going on right now where the active history editors are asking chat GPT about their own subject matter. Some really interesting results so far. There's been a couple articles posted. Should be a series through the rest of the fall. So check that out or whatever else is up on the website. There's a great piece by Daniel Meester last week as well, which I would recommend as well as the History Slam episode we did with him a couple of years ago. So just uh, always great material over there at activehistory.ca. So thanks again so much for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again next week for some more What's Old is News.